Thank you for downloading our podcast. Zachariah is a prophet who delivers a message to Israel regarding their national failure to prioritize the rebuilding of God's temple. We might say, well, this is only a building. So what really is the big deal? The big deal is that we see a deeper problem in the stalling of the construction project. The problem in the issue is whether the Lord really can build his people in his city into a place that is worthy of his dwelling. So can the Lord build his city? Is the Lord sovereign enough to bring his redeemed people into his presence as he has promised at the exit of Eden? Please stay tuned to this series on Zechariah, where we consider the night visions. Are they visions of doom or deliverance? Well, as we make our way through the prophet Zechariah and we come to the end or to this last section of Zechariah, we come to the place where basically now the prophet is summarizing what does it look like to enter into the day of the Lord. Uh, we've had up to this point, if we find the, the thrust of the visions, uh, the, the drive of what's going on, that fundamentally the Lord's promising nations will rise up, they will assemble, uh, they will try and overpower God in his city, but God will establish Jerusalem It will be founded. It will be established. And as the Lord establishes his city, uh, he is the one who's going to put down the nations and also remove those within his city that truly are not his people. And so that's basically the thrust of where Zechariah's visions go. Chapters 12 through 14 is now the prophet revisiting this point. In chapter 12, verses 1 through 9 is, is a bit of taking a drink from a fire hose as to what the day of the Lord looks like, and the prophet is going to spell it out. So it's important when you go through Zechariah 12, 1 through 9, that you understand that the Lord is the shepherd, the protector, defender. When you read going on in chapter 12, 13, 14, when he describes some of the horrible things, you remember what was promised in Zechariah 12, 1 through 9, the ultimate established victory. And so as we we consider this, we're left with that question, then how do we fundamentally know that God is one who is truly able to save? Zacharias, I've mentioned, we think of the time in in Chronicles of Israel going into the land, conspiracy against Israel, uh, preventing them from building the temple. Once again, they have a setback. We've made references, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the promises of exile, promises of return, All of that is entering into this. And so with Zechariah, we we ask the question, how do we know that God can truly establish his city? It seems like from Isaiah, it seems like from uh, Jeremiah, from Chronicles, the records we have that basically God has a plan of redemption. His people go into exile, come back to the land, back into exile, and it just becomes this repetitive motif without any rest. So how do we know there's going to definitively be rest? So as we consider this, we'll see first the Lord's creation, secondly, the Lord's city, and lastly, the Lord's recreation and what he intends to do. And so let's begin with the Lord's creation. Well, if we look in this chapter where we have the burden of the Lord, as we mentioned, it's not just oracle, but it's literally the burden of the word of the Lord. So it's the weight of the word of the Lord comes. Now, we've heard this before in 9 verse 1, 
where it was the word of the Lord that comes against Damascus. Uh, it's a word that comes against the north and Hadrach, Damascus, where the Lord is coming down with his, with his heavenly army. And now the, the burden of the Lord is moving from what's going to happen to the nations where the Lord is turning to his people. And so I, I think one of the narratives we downplay a lot in Scripture is the origin story uh, in Genesis with God wrestling with Jacob. And it's important to understand that God's always going to wrestle with his people. He's always uh, going to prevail over his people as his people wrestle with him. Uh, that becomes very much a metaphor of the Christian life, of, of our wrestling with God. Of This is what I want this is what you're doing in the Lord again, reminding us as to what's appropriate in our desires, what's inappropriate in our desires, and the Lord sanctifying us to his purpose. Again, Jacob, Genesis 32, after the Lord touching his hip, walks out and over to Egypt with a limp, understanding the essence of the gospel. God does not work through the strength of man or manifest through his strength, but he works through weakness. So when you hear that and you understand the day of the Lord, it's important to understand that, mo that motif in Zechariah 12 of this day of the Lord being manifested, the strength of the Lord being shown, and how the Lord will work out his strength through weakness. And so we, we ask that question, well, how do we know that the Lord really cares? How do we know that he's going to, to shepherd us? Well, it's the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, not Judah. This is important because he spoke of putting a dividing line between Israel and Judah, dividing them. But now the Lord, speaking of Israel, as God wrestles, he prevails. The wrestling God will prevail over his people. That's what we have to hear in the opening of this verse. The God who wrestles with his wrestling people is going to prevail in this wrestling match. And we say, great, God's going to prevail in this wrestling match. Temple stalled. Here we are in the midst of the land, been in exile. How is this going to happen? Well, the Lord now presents a bit of his resume. And he tells us through the prophet, he stretched out the heavens and he founded the earth. This declaration here is obviously making a reference back to Genesis. And it's a, a, a recollection for us to meditate on what's going on there. The Lord doesn't create the world to a great battle. He's not wrestling with other gods and he's not trying to triumph over another god and then making creation out of other remains of those gods who are destroyed. And so God's just a little bit stronger than the other gods. Those are different myths, different theories on the creation from the pagan religions. Our story of creation is the Lord issuing a command. And what is not there comes into being. And so when the Lord says, I stretched out the heavens, this is a, the personal interaction of God creating this world. The stretching out the heavens is a reminder. He calls out, the creation comes into being. Setting the firmament is the Lord basically taking the canopy and personally placing it over this world. It's the Lord setting up this world, setting up his terrarium, whatever you want to say. It's God who is very personal with this creation. He's not a distant God, not an abstracted God, not a God who, who is so distinct from his creation that, that he's indifferent to it. He's distinct from it, 
but he's still the one who watches over it and cares for it and sees to it that everything that needs to be done is done. These are echoes we can see in Psalm 104, for instance, celebrating God's creative work. Uh, we find Isaiah 42.5, where we began our call to worship from Isaiah 42, the reminder of how the Lord is the one who cares for his people, watches over this creation, this world, as he cares for this creation, so he cares for his people. That's why I wanted to read also from Matthew chapter 6. God cares for the lilies of the field. He cares for these little things that we can take for granted and, and maybe notice and say maybe it's beautiful, but not really think of God personally, you know, giving these colors and personally seeing to it that these flowers come to life that just die. But this is all evidence of the Lord caring for this creation. So the Lord through Zechariah is saying, listen, I set this creation, I set this world this is my world. I own it. I am God. I am king. But he tells us something else. It's not just that God created the world. And obviously that's something that, that's humbling when we think about the reality of that. But he says something else. It's not that God formed man, which, which he did when we think of Genesis 2, of the Lord coming down, making the mud pie. But he says something even more specific than that. I formed the spirit within man. In other words, it's not just that God formed our flesh and then just allowed us somehow to suck in the breath of life and come into existence. But it's a very personal thing that makes us who we are, the essence of our, our personhood, the essence of, of what drives us. God has personally formed. He's made our soul. He's made who we are. And so it's a reminder that when God is looking at his people in Israel in particular in this context saying, how do I know God cares for me? The Lord's saying, I, I created this world. I created you individually. I didn't just make man and just kind of let it happen. There's a personal understanding of how God has created each individual in this world and his own people. And so there's there's a call to say, as I wanted to, to capture from Matthew chapter 6, what does Christ say? Why, why do you worry about tomorrow? And, and really, we can say, because a lot of bad stuff can happen. And what Matthew 6 is calling us to question is, why are we worried about that? Who is our shield? Who is our defender? Who is our God? And Christ is saying, I am your God. I am the one who knows what you need. Seek me. Pursue me. And as you pursue me, you will have life. Now, does our mind naturally go there? Well, no. This is why Christ has to tell us. He knows who we are. Again, Matthew 6 communicates so well how God knows who we are. So right here in the opening of Zechariah, it's an intention for the Lord's people who are left in a place saying, okay, the nations are coming against us. The nations are conspiring against us. We can't build our temple. It doesn't seem like God loves us. It seems that God has turned his back on us. It seems that we're only going to face death. What is the hope? Now Zechariah is saying, let me introduce for you the concept of the day of the Lord. Let me introduce for you the notion that God is leading you to this day. And it is not a dismal day for God's people if we take hold of Christ by faith. And so he's laying out now, this is my resume. This is how you should know 
then I can bring this about. I created the world. I created you. I called you. You are my people, personally created by me. So you hear that and you say, wow, what a wonderful thing. This is who our God is. Right there, 12 verse 1, we can stop and say, what a message. But as we go on and, and we look at verses 2 uh, through 6, we find, or actually 2 through 5, where we find something else about what the Lord is going to do. He tells us something is going to do with Jerusalem. Now again, when you read Jerusalem in Zechariah, the temptation to say, well, this is a literal city of Jerusalem, and, and some people take it that way. But think of Jerusalem as Scripture reveals it in later um, revelatory passages. We think of Hebrews, like I wanted to read through Hebrews. You think of the greater mountain, like, like we heard in Hebrews 12. Yeah, it's kind of frightening. You, you hear about the greater mountain, the greater place, and a stern warning. But there's also an encouragement that because of our Melchizedekian priest, that's the Jerusalem we're called to look to. We think of revelation of the Jerusalem or the Lord's city coming down from heaven. So Jerusalem is not so much Jerusalem in the east, Jerusalem in Canaan. We think of Jerusalem as being the place of the mountain of God where God assembles with his people. It's, it's a city of peace, the place of peace where we reside in true shalom in the presence of God. Now, when, when we think about this, the Lord is saying, I'm making Jerusalem a cup of staggering. So you wonder, well, what, what does this mean? Because when he talks about a cup, this can mean a lot of things. This could be very bad, or this could be very good. We think of it as a blessing in the sense of Psalm 23. And again, this is another psalm I think is important to call to our attention in terms of this passage. Because he says, I pour my cup, or I set my cup in the presence of your enemies. Think about that imagery in Psalm 23. I mean, it's an absurd image that here you are with the nation surrounding you, guns pointed at you, people who want to harm you, treacherous animals surrounding you, and the Lord is setting a table there and dining and fellowshipping with you in the midst of it. And, and it's one of those images, if you really capture what the psalm is saying, you're going to be on edge looking around saying, I don't think we want to eat here. This is not safe. This is not a good place. But the Lord just continues to prepare the banquet. That's the cup of blessing, the cup of protection of the Lord. He's not threatened by those foes or those enemies. They're not a threat to him. He can set up his table in that place or in the glorified Mount Jerusalem. This is a glorious promise of God. So this is a blessing, a blessing of being in the presence of the Lord, no matter the circumstances. But there's also a, a cup of curse or a cup of wrath. We think of Isaiah 51, 17, where the Lord promises to pour out his wrath and make them drink of his cup. Jeremiah 25, 15 through 17, another passage that I think Zechariah might be relying on here of a warning of, again, that call of the Lord's hand and making the nations drink from this cup and literally saying, making them stagger. And so when, when we hear this language of a cup of staggering, we wonder, is this what the Lord's going to do to his people, where, where they're going to be in a state of confusion? It's not necessarily a blessing, but that would seem to contradict verse 1. We find that now the Lord is speaking of a promise of glory and blessing 
for his covenant people who have passed through judgment or, or are there on the side of judgment of, of experiencing the bliss and blessing of God. But the nations are going to be like a cup of staggering. And so the point is that all these nations that uh, seem to be mighty and powerful are going to be staggering around like a bunch of drunk people. Uh, they're, they're not going to be able to uh, bring their A game to the war. They're not going to be in their right mind is, is, is the force of this. And so as the nations gather together against the Lord's people, his protection is so sure that he's going to make it that as they drink of this cup, they're, they're going to fall. They're, they're not going to be able to stand. They're not going to be able to fight uh, with clarity of mind at all. And so this, this echo to this cup is understanding the, the reality of, of, this, of this promise. But also the, the notion of this cup is, is sort of like a basin as well as it's used in the Hebrew. So this can also be a reference back to the Exodus event where the Israelites have basically poured out the blood in a basin and then they spread the blood on their doorposts. It's another important image to keep in our mind because this is an event where the Lord has allowed his people to suffer and then the Exodus event is where the Lord delivers his people showing his wrath and also his deliverance in the same event. Those who are not his people experience his judgment. Those who are his people get led out of uh, the land of Egypt through the sea, finding their life, that the Lord cares for his people. And so all these imageries seem to be in the minds or what Zechariah intends for us to think about, meditate on these promises. A Lord who prepares a cup, the Lord who brings deliverance, the Lord who saves his people. Now, as we hear of these peoples that gather together and what's going on, there's, there's a picture here of the nations basically converging over to Jerusalem. Where you think of yourself being inside the city of Jerusalem with merely a BB gun, and you have all these nations with their modern day technology, the war horses, as mentioned here, um, this would be basically like saying the nations come against us with the tanks and their airplanes and all their GPS technology and all their missiles are fixed on this particular city. And there you are in the midst of it with a BB gun. That's the imagery of what's going on here. So if you read this, you think, well, how are we going to stand against this technology? How are we going to be strong enough to fight against these nations who outnumber us have greater technology than we do, there's no way we're going to get out of this. But as the Lord conjures up this notion, he wants us to understand it's not about us and our strength fighting out of this situation. Because we can't. That's the intention. It's, it's calling to our attention the reality of our helplessness, our humility, and how we cannot fight out of this in our own strength. But what does the Lord do? On that day, the day of the Lord. I mean, it's a wonderful thing, declares the Lord. I will strike every horse. Notice this, with panic. And so when you think about these well-trained war horses, as I've mentioned before, if this horse really is trained for war, the rider who is upon the horse has to hold the horse back before receiving the battle call because these horses are eager to go to war. It's their competition. It's what the horse wants to do. And in a sense, what the horse has been bred to do and has been trained to do. And so the rider on the horse has to hold the thing back. 
But these horses that are mighty and strong and brave are those that are going to all of a sudden have panic. They're going to have madness. They're not going to have clarity. Uh, the, the ones who are the riders, they're not going to be thinking clearly. They're, they're going to go insane. And we have that basically the, the Lord's basically saying, I'm not even sending my angelic army at this point to deal with this. It's the Lord like in verse 1. Remember how I gave the command for the creation? Remember how I formed your spirit within you and personally made you? Well, so I'm going to personally interfere with this well-trained war horse and I'm going to personally interfere with a well-trained rider and warrior upon the horse. And I'm going to see to it that they cannot carry out their order. It's the reality that they will fall. And why is the Lord doing this? The Lord is doing this for the sake of the house of Judah, that the Lord is the one who is doing this for the sake of the messianic king. So this battle that is being presented here, I sort of take issue, uh, chapter 14, where the heading, uh, even in our pew Bibles here, is the coming of the day of the Lord. It's not the coming of the day of the Lord. This is the introduction to the day of the Lord. The, the language isn't used here, but this is the language of, of Harmageddon, the mount of the assembly. And so Mageddon is basically assembling together uh, with, with a purpose of action is, is what the word literally means. So it's a purpose of going to war. And so as they assemble together against Jerusalem for the purpose of going to war, the Lord's saying, in all this intimidation, I simply issue a command. It's only saying, I just issue a command. And everything that scares you and frightens you just falls apart. You know, an imagery of this would be sort of like Gideon, uh, where he goes to war with his strategy, and all of a sudden, you know, with the shattering of the jars and the chanting and the yelling, that the Lord puts the enemies in a state of confusion, and they start killing each other, right? That's, that's the image of what's going on here. That's sort of the picture on a smaller scale, that, that the pattern of what the Lord has set. He will do this for the sake of the house of Judah. Why is that important? Because the Messianic king, the Melchizedekian priest, comes from the house of Judah. The Lord is going to deliver the reality of this. The Lord is going to give them their strength. So this prophecy of what the Lord is doing is giving the assurance that everything that these people want to do against the people of God will fall apart. Because of the Lord's protective mercy. The Lord is going to do this. Notice then, uh, throughout these chapters, you have the language on that day, on that day, on that day. As you have in 12.3, 12.4, 12.6. The assurance of what the Lord is going to do in all of this reality. Now Israel will rise up and they will be the champion people. But going on then, we say, well then what about the Lord's action? How, how do we know that this city is not going to fall again. We have in verses, uh, basically, when we look uh, through 7 through 9, and picking up from chapter, or verse 6, the reality of this flaming torch, the, the war of his people going forth and basically cleaning up this endeavor. You have his people being empowered, going to make war, but then we have this promise of the Lord bringing salvation to the tents of Judah the glory of the house of David, right? The glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so it's the promise that, again, this city is going to have this glorious promise restored. But there's something else 
in terms of this salvation. Because the, the promise of this giving salvation is something else that recalls for us an event. Because it is the Lord who has saved his people from the Egyptians. As I mentioned, the cup, the Passover, uh, having the basin of blood, the judgment, deliverance, all going on at the same time, being manifested in that same day, in the same event. So here is a promise in 7 through 9 that this salvation is coming to the tents of Judah. In other words, the Lord's people, the Lord's king will stand. It will be established. It will be manifested. And then it's going to come to pass as has been demonstrated in the Exodus. 400 years where it seems the Lord has forsaken his promise and then all of a sudden marching out of the land of Egypt, their enemies put down in mourning. And so we say, well, then how do we know that God is really doing this? Well, when he tells us the house of Judah, when he tells us that this is salvation, what is this telling us? Remember, we, we covered Christ going into Jerusalem. We talked about the donkey being the, basically the limousine escort of parading a king. It's something that has a royal a motif to it, not coming in war, but in the sense of saying, here is our king. Here is the one who we have chosen. But this king is going to be uh, cut off and, and put down. And so the deliverance of the house of Judah, well, what does that mean? It means Christ is going to be raised from the dead then it means that as this king is put down, this king is going to rise up. And as this king is raised up, this king is going to manifest that day. So we cannot minimize the significance of the work of Christ. When the wrath of God is poured out on him on the cross, the day of the Lord is manifested in that event. It's showing the definitive cutting off, what death looks like, enduring hell. But Christ emerging through that death as a triumphant one is showing us that the house of David is forever established. It cannot be annulled. It cannot be taken away. That's what the prophet is telling us. You're going to send this Christ to the cross. You're going to send this one to the cross. But God's going to raise him up. Don't mourn. Don't weep. This is the end of the day. This is what's going to happen. And what happens on that day in verse 8? On that day... The Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, when you hear this, again, if we want to take Jerusalem literally, we're going to say, oh, well, this is only for the Jews. And so you can understand when Christ enters into history, they think, oh, he's going to come upon the throne. He's going to sit on the throne of David. We're going to have the glorious um, city of Jerusalem. We're going to look down on the Gentiles. But what is the promise of Jerusalem in Zechariah? It's an international city. This is what Zechariah has taught us, that people are going to come, they're going to grab the, the hems of those who are leaving and saying, take us with you. In other words, this city is not just a city for the Jewish individuals, literal descendants of Abraham. This is an international community that's going to be protected by the hand of God. Now, he gives a description of how the Lord is going to give this protection. It's going to be to the house of Judah. It's going to be to the city. We have then that we have these individuals in the city. He gives salvation. He gives life. And on this very day, these protections come. But it's not just that the Lord is going to bring judgment. 
this protection, this graciousness. He, he, he talks about the individuals that make up his community, the feeblest. This can be the old. Could even be those who are not even very strong in their faith is a, is a way of communicating this. Those who have kind of been a little wishy-washy. Love the Lord, but, but not really firm in their commitment and what they're doing. But yet they're the Lord's. And as he does this, he's saying that these people who are weak are those who are going to be like David. Now, when you hear this language, it's not just that the Lord is saying, uh, like David in a sense of the adulterer or the murderer. He wants us to think of David as Hebrews 11 would present David in the summary of his life, of the one who has slain his tens of thousands, the one who stood before the giant and said, how dare you mock my God, as the one who stands there as a warrior of the Most High, seeking to serve his commander. I love the, the imagery, like God, like the angel of the Lord. This too is this language you have of the Exodus. The angel of the Lord going before them uh, makes an echo back to Exodus 14 where you have the angel of the Lord going before God's people, standing behind God's people. So it's as if the Lord is walking with one leg in front of Israel, one leg behind Israel and standing over them in protection. This is what the protection looks like, that God is going to strengthen his people in such a way that they will fight his battle as they were supposed to fight his battle, not like Israel in the book of Judges, but like those who are in the ideal times of Joshua and David fighting the Lord's battle. And as the Lord does this, he gives the ultimate promise. He's going to destroy those nations those nations that seek to come against Jerusalem. So again, this imagery is the Lord standing on Mount Zion, standing on his holy mountain. The nations assemble so that Mount Zion becomes Armageddon, the mountain of assembly, right? And it's assembling with purpose, assembling to destroy. As these nations come together like another Tower of Babel type event, Another situation like with the flood where they mock Noah and what he's doing and these different images that we find in Scripture. The Lord's going to take his stand on his mountain and he's going to come with his heavenly army, which we are part of. Remember, we talked about us being part of the Lord of hosts and being identified in this. That is the angelic army, the earthly army joining together, being equipped and empowered to fight the Lord's battle and that the Lord is the one who's going to put them down. That's the promise of what Zechariah 12, 1 through 9 is laying out. This is the ultimate summary. This is simply what it means. I created the world. I deliver my people. The nations come together to destroy my people. I empower my people. And I triumph in my people. This is where it's so beautiful when you read of the armor of God. God putting his armor upon us, equipping us to make it through this age. And so when we ask that question of how do we know that the Lord will establish his city? How do we know that this promise is true? Because the Lord promises the city will stand forever. And we say, what proof does God give? The Lord says, I stretched out the world. I made this creation by my mere word. I am the God 
who has created you personally with the breath of life. I am the God who wrestles with my people. I am the God who has shielded and defended my people. I am the God of the Exodus, which is the echoes that are going on here. The mighty superpower Egypt, how did they stand against me? I led you out of there. I walked before you and after you so that no nation could triumph over you. I fed you in the wilderness. The Lord saying, what more do you need? Time and time and time and time again, we find that the Lord is the one who is faithful, who leads and cares for his people. And the ultimate assurance is that the Lord is saying, I will bring you to my mountain. And I'm telling you, the nations are going to surround you. And it's going to seem frightening and terrifying. But I am the God who created the world. I am the God who rules over all things, and they will not triumph over you. I will put them down. You will dwell in my presence. You will dwell in the true Jerusalem that I seek to establish. I will empower the weak. I will empower those who are broken. I will heal those who are sick. These are the promises that the Lord is making. So Zechariah 12, 1 through 9 is laying out the ultimate assurance that our God is victorious. And so when we hear these things and we face the anxieties or the stresses of this world, let us take these things serious in what our Lord has done. When Christ tells us not to worry about tomorrow, he's not saying this to beat us up. He's not saying this just to rebuke us. I mean, obviously, yes, it is a sin if we worry. But why? Because we're saying that we don't really trust that the Lord is our shield and defender. For Christ to give this encouragement in these words is telling us, I know where you struggle. You struggle in believing I am your shield and defender. You struggle in believing that I am able to overpower you. This is where the origin story of Jacob is so important. The man who is quick-witted, the man who is a great schemer, the man who is a great liar and con artist, the man who outlabed Laban at the end of the story is the one who is conquered and humbled by the living God. The one who recognizes that strength only comes through weakness and bowing our knee and our heart and our minds to the living God. This is what the Lord is assuring us. He's saying, as I break you and chip away the things of this world and the things you trust in, I'm showing you that I am the God of deliverance. Pattern after pattern after pattern, our Lord is a God of deliverance. If we take nothing else from Zechariah 12, let us go in the confidence that our God being our shield and defender, was not just a promise to Abram. It's a promise that is made to his people. Let us walk in the confidence of that promise, seeing that life is only found in our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday 
at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.